continuing in the chronological life of Jesus, we're going to be reading in Matthew chapter 22 from verse 41. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. And one of the keys here is that, recall, we are, we are in the, again, in the last week of Jesus' life. This is still Tuesday of the last week of His life. There's more written about this day, this Tuesday of the last week of His life, than any other individual day in the Gospels. So it's really filled. In fact, uh, uh, one might even say that about 10% of all of the Gospels uh, deal with this particular day. So it's a, it's a pretty important day. So what we've covered is that Jesus has been tested four times. They are testing this lamb uh, and, and, uh, uh, to see if it's without spot, without blemish, as they did the physical, actual lamb that was used on the Passover. And now they're testing Jesus four times, and in all four times, he has passed the test. They could find no spot, no blemish in him in the sense that he was proven, that, that uh, uh, he was indeed the Messiah. And now he puts before them a little challenge. But what he's doing is he's again asking them a question. Remember, the traditional Jewish way of teaching was to start with a question and then build around that question. We call it the Socratic method of teaching. The Jews had been doing this for a long time, and uh, uh, Jesus asks now the Pharisees a question because he's passed the four tests. So he turns to them in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So now remember what Jesus is doing is Jesus is asking them again, a very high-level question, both academically and theologically, because these are Pharisees. Remember, these are experts. Jesus is an absolute expert in the Scriptures because fundamentally He wrote them. And, and uh, uh, the Pharisees studied this. And it's, it's much like if you were to go to a yeshiva today, you would see that there, there are men there that just devote their entire lives to studying the Scriptures. They learn how to read in order to lead, read the Scriptures. And throughout their entire lives, they go and they, they, they debate the Scriptures. They read it together and they debate. <clears throat> and so these are the men that he's asking this question. He says, what do you think in verse 42 about the Christ? That means the Messiah. They well understood the Christ means the Messiah. The one whom God is going to send to redeem Israel. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So, in other words, of whose descendancy is this Christ uh, uh, going to be when he comes? And they said to him, the son of David. Now, how would they know this? Because they're scholars in in the Word of God. They're absolute scholars. So, they knew immediately that that Jesus, that, that the Messiah was going to come. He was going to be of the offspring and the lineage of David. They immediately had an answer to that. And so he asked them this question, and then he, he says, he asked them a second question. They answered that rightly, so he asked them a second question. 
Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So in other words, what he does is he quotes now from Psalm 110, verse 1, which is a messianic psalm. And remember, these are experts in the law. This is like watching two professors speaking on a particular subject in which they're both experts. It's a lot of fun to watch the dialogue. Even though we may not be able to appreciate all that they're discussing, it's just fun to watch a dialogue between experts in a certain area. So Jesus says, okay then, if he's the offspring of David, then how does David in the Spirit, meaning that David was writing by the, by, by the, the power of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, how does David call him Lord? Because a, a father does not generally call his son or his grandson or his offspring Lord. So he says, why does David call him Lord? In verse, in verse 44, he, he cites Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, this first word, Lord, if you go to Psalm 110, you'll see in your English Bible, it's in all little, it's big L with little caps, little capital letters. And this is the proper name, Yahweh. This name, this descriptive name for God, this is what his name was. How does Yahweh, how does the Lord say, why does he say, Yahweh says to my Lord, my Lord is this Adonai, this singular Lord presence. So, how does Yahweh say to this other person, the Lord said to my Lord. In other words, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. They well recognize something that you and I don't recognize. So we think, oh, well, you know, I wish their eyes were open so they understood the Scriptures like we do. Let me tell you, those Pharisees really knew the Scriptures. They knew that that second Lord there was the Messiah. That they knew. Just by the description of His name. Yahweh, God, is saying to Messiah... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And the whole rest of the psalm is a messianic psalm about what Yahweh, God the Father, is going to do with the Messiah. He says, why does he call him Lord? Why does David refer to him Lord if he's David's offspring? And, you know, this is something they had never seen before. Now, remember, to ask an expert something that they've never seen before is really quite profound. This is no trivial little question for them. If they could have answered it, they would have answered it. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Because remember, this is the Socratic method of teaching. He asks a question not just to stump them. He is trying to begin to get them to understand who he is. And they're just utterly baffled by this. They're stuck on just this one little word. But this was enough to silence them. You know, for us, it wouldn't silence us because we are so low level, we don't understand how profound a question it really was and how profound an observation it was. So we just think, oh, that's pretty simple. <laughs> no, but to them, it was a huge deal. It was such a profound question that, boom. I mean, the, all these professors of the law were just stopped in their tracks. They couldn't answer him. But remember, this was a question not to stump them, but to bring them around to the answer. Because this particular psalm, which they well knew, 
describes exactly what this Messiah is going to do, how he's going to have victory over his enemies. So this has got them really thinking now. What does this mean? His enemies. Could we be his enemies? I mean, and it just, gulp. I mean, we don't know what to say. It's got them thinking. And then Jesus proceeds on. And now comes a portion in the scriptures where uh, uh, there's the denunciation of the leadership. So we're going to read now in Matthew chapter 23, reading from verse 1. Matthew 23, verse 1. And this is the denunciation of the leadership of Israel of that day. Now, some people would say that this is hate speech. Some people would say that this was mean of Jesus to say this. But it was very much in keeping with the Old Testament prophets, with the spirit of the Old Testament prophets. Very much in keeping with that. Because what he does is he is denouncing the leadership of Israel. He's not denouncing the common people. He's denouncing the leadership of Israel. This is what Isaiah did. This is what Ezekiel did. This is what Jeremiah did. This is what the minor prophets did. They came against the leadership of Israel for leading them astray. And then they came against Israel itself for following these leaders when they were leading them astray. This same sort of thing has happened was happening in Jesus' day, the same sort of thing happens today. You know, ask a Jew and start to reason with them about the Messiah, Jesus, and they'll ultimately come around and they'll say this, well, if He were really the Messiah, why don't the rabbis teach us that? And so again, it's not that, well, I see it, but it can't be right because the rabbis don't teach us that. And Jesus now is beginning to denounce specifically. So first what he does is he starts to speak to the people about the Pharisees, and then he will address the Pharisees themselves. This is his last open witness to the masses. That's it. After this, he's just going to give a small instruction to his disciples in the temple during some offerings, and then he goes up to the Mount of Olives, and that's it. Everything after this is just for the apostles. He teaches only them. This is the last public proclamation that he will make. The only thing else that you hear is an open defense that he might make during his, his uh, 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 trial uh, at the time of where they're getting ready for his crucifixion. So this, these are the last things that Jesus is going to speak to the masses. In verse 1 of Matthew 23, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. 
Now the Pharisees are here. The Pharisees are listening to this, and he is now saying, and it says he he was saying this now. There were crowds, and his disciples were there. He said this to the he said to these crowds and the disciples. Among this crowd was the Pharisees, and we know that because of the next portion we're going to read. But Jesus says. They've seated themselves in the chair of Moses. The chair of Moses, if you went to Chorazin today, you would see a black chair that's made out of uh, um, the volcanic rock that's, that's in that region. And there's a black chair still to this day. These are the chairs of Moses. In other words, these are the, the uh, legal chairs that, that uh, the leaders would sit in that would render civil judgments. And he says that they render civil judgments. You're going to have to obey those, but don't do as they do because they themselves don't follow my ways. He says they tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, and, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. If you look at the Mishnah, at the Talmud today, this is the writings of men. They say that this is the oral law that came from Moses. There is no teaching of that in the scriptures that we have. We have a written law that came from Moses. Jesus obeyed the 613 commandments of the written law, and he not only disobeyed the Talmud and the Mishnaic teachings, the oral law of that day, which was then transcribed, he went out of his way to disobey them. He showed his contempt for those laws because he said, these rules of men have made the word of God of no effect. And we've seen instances, like when he healed the the blind man. He went out of his way and he did exactly in the healing what the Mishnah and the Talmud said you shouldn't do. He healed them in exactly that way. Constantly healing on the Sabbath, the way he was not supposed to do it, he openly did it that way. He says they put all these burdens upon people. He says... uh, 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 in verse 5, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. These are these little boxes in which they put about four scripture verses. This was under the law. They were supposed to do that. And they lengthen the tassels of their garments. If you see an Orthodox Jew, you'll often see coming down from their sides these tassels that are hanging, even down to the blue thread that was supposed to be, that's supposed to be there. But he says they lengthen them just so that people can see them. Instead of having these little boxes hung here, that they make these boxes big so people can see it. Now, this is not just the Pharisees. What I want us to do in all of this is I want us to see within ourselves what we do. Let me give you an example. So, and I'll give you an example from common day practice. And I know this because I work in this area of, of alternative energy devices. I work with oil and gas. I work with these alternative energy devices, photovoltaics. This is these panels where the sun will hit and generate electricity for your home. So what do you do? You put them on your, the roof of your home so there's southern exposure so you get the most light there from the sun. Well, what are the manufacturers of this saying about the installation of these in California? So lots of people are putting these on their home. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But the manufacturers are telling people you've got to put this on the southern face of your roof so that you get the most sun exposure. Many people are telling them, no, we want it placed on the northern face. We want it placed on the face that faces the front road. 
because people want their neighbors to see that they have these solar panels. Even though it's not as efficient. Toyota has, has made the Prius, and this was a marketing genius. When you see somebody driving a Prius, you know, the car that looks like an egg, you know that they are driving a hybrid vehicle, so they care about the environment. Well, every manufacturer has hybrid vehicles, but you don't know it until you see that little tag on their hybrid. But there's more Priuses sold than all other hybrid vehicles combined because they've done the marketing. People want others to know that they care about the environment. So you see, everybody can be guilty of this. It's not just the Pharisees 2,000 years ago. People do things to be recognized by other people, even if it's not the best thing to do. Jesus is coming against them for this. Now, that's not to say you're bad if you, buy, if, if you bought a, a, uh, a Prius. That's fine. It's just what was your motivation in buying the Prius? And, and uh, uh, verse 6, They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats at the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. Now, there are certain denominations that will use that expression, father, for their teachers. And I'm, I'm not judging anybody, because if you look in Acts chapter 7, remember Acts chapter 7 came quite a while after this, this event. Came, came uh, um, well, not quite a while, maybe a month, two months, three months after this event. Stephen is making a defense. And in that defense, he uses the word father in chapter 7 12 times. I went through and counted it. He uses it more than 12, but he uses father 12 times in reference to his ancestors and in reference to the Jewish leaders that are there about to stone him. He says, my fathers. Now, didn't Stephen know about Jesus saying, don't call any man father? Or could it be that Jesus is using this in another way? Because Jesus, remember, receives Stephen into heaven right after he uses the word Father 12 times. So it, that's why it's probably best not to judge other denominations and the words they're using on this. But, but I'd, personally, I don't, when, I, when I see a, a, a priest and I have friends of them who are priests, I don't like calling them Father. I like calling them some other name. Um, and it says, but then Jesus turns the whole thing around. He says, but the greatest among you, in verse 11, shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You want to be great? Do you want to be great? Become a servant. Do you want to be great? Become a servant. This is what he instructs us. This is why I tell people, if, if, if uh, young ladies will sometimes come to us and say, oh, you know, no guys are interested in me. I don't know if I'll ever get married. And, and I tell them, what you can do is you come to our home for lunch and you serve. You serve there. You make yourself a servant. And some guy is going to notice. Some guy is going to notice. And I tell guys, if you serve, some girl is going to notice. And what happens is you end up meeting a person who is selfless rather than selfish. When you serve, people notice. You serve in a church. Let me tell you what will happen. I, know, I have known people to go out from this church on mission trips 
with the church and they just serve their hearts out. Other people on the mission trip are big movers and shakers in the community from this church and they see that person serving and they go, wow, look at that rice student, how they serve. I want to hire them when they get out of here. Because they see people who are serving. You make yourself a servant and people want to hire you. You have an internship, make yourself a servant. You see trash on the ground, pick it up. Spend down, pick it up and throw it out. When I, when I work out in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the rec center there, I see these paper towels on the ground that people have wiped and it's thrown. I just pick it up and throw it out. It's not a big deal. But you become a servant, boom, people will notice this. You become a servant, people will notice it. Jesus said, you'll become great. You will become great. Now, Jesus starts addressing head on the Pharisees and the scribes, those religious leaders. He takes them head on, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, think about these words. These are incendiary. But remember, he's God. So, God can do this type of thing. Not only this, He's coming very much in the spirit of the prophets of the Old Testament. Watch how many times he's going to call them hypocrites. You know, hypocrite is a hard word to be called. And, and he, he called them that in verse 13. And you think, uh, Jesus, can't you just tone it down a bit? You know, the, 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 we, we just, just uh, you know, the, these words are offensive, Jesus. Well, he goes on in verse 14. NIV skips verse 14 a lot because it's not found in some manuscripts. But uh, you might find it in your margin. But verse 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. You know, when he says, Woe to you, these woes are like, Watch out. You, don't, you have no idea what's about to hit you now. He says, he again calls them hypocrites, because widows were to have a special place in Israel. Yet they would foreclose on their homes by saying, we will pray about it. And their prayer was, yes, foreclose on their homes. That's what they said they would. And so they would foreclose on their homes. So Jesus was hitting them directly on. Imagine, you know, just coming and being confronted with this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around the sea and land to make one proselyte. And, be, and, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. I mean, these words are hot. Because often converts become, would get more in tune with their Mishnaic law than they were even themselves. And you often see this with, with people who come from non-Christian homes. When they come to Jesus, they can get really excited about the Lord. More excited than people who grew up in Christian homes. You see this all the time. Verse 18, Woe to you, blind guides! who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, that he is obligated. You foolish and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctify the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies it? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by both the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by both the temple and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits on it. I mean, these are powerful words. And you think, okay, that's enough. He's not done. 
There's seven woes here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things are the things you should have done while, without neglecting the others. So in other words, they would tithe right down to the little bit of spices that they had. The last bit of mint. Oh, well, we have to take one leaf of this and give it to the Lord and we keep nine leaves. He says you do that, but you've forgotten the much weightier things. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. This is much deeper. And then he says, but these things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, it's not wrong to tithe. I'm not saying you should neglect those things. Go ahead, tithe on everything you have. But don't forget the deeper things. Verse, verse uh, um, 24, You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside will become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we never would have partnered with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of the murderers of the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your guilt. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape, <coughs> escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, <coughs> I am sending you prophets and wise men <coughs> and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall all the guilt of the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. His judgment was upon that generation, the leadership of that generation. Not all Jews for all eternity. He says upon that generation. It was very specific. And they will undergo the judgment in 70 A.D., so about 35 years after Jesus is saying this, they are going to undergo that judgment. 35 to 40 years after Jesus is saying these words. And, and so what he does is he proclaims judgment upon that city. He says, I'm going to send you prophets, I'm going to send you instructors, and you're going to kill them, you're going to crucify them, you're going to hurt them. But then he, he talks about this. Now this is, remember, incendiary talk. I want to turn this back on ourselves. We could look at them and say, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. When he says that you, you are going to be responsible for all the deaths of the, of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Abel, remember, was the son of Adam and Eve. Zechariah was the last person to die, the last prophet to die in Second Chronicles. If you look at the order of the Jewish Bible, it doesn't end in Malachi, their, their Tanakh, which is our Old Testament. They have the same books as us, different order. Their last book is Second Chronicles. So it, it's equivalent to our saying from Genesis to Revelation. From Abel to Zechariah, you are going to be responsible for all of this. I mean, this is really hot. Now, let me, give you, let me tell you a few things. One day, when I was a student, 
I was battling with a particular sin and, and uh, I didn't think anybody knew it. And my pastor walked in, it was a Sunday, and he, we, we were just standing around before church. He looked at me, he walked right up to me and he said, if you continue in your sin, it's going to draw you away from the Lord. I didn't think anybody knew about this. But that man just, boom, right on in. And it really scared me because I didn't want to get drawn away from the Lord. And he just zeroed right in on my sin. I remember I was sitting, and I've told you this story before, I was sitting in a David Wilkerson conference. That man was just prophetic. And I was just judging him in my heart because it was very unlike what I was used to in teaching. You know, he would get up and he would say, uh, you know, somebody here has a bad left knee and they'd come up and he'd pray for them. And I'm thinking, with thousands of people in the audience, somebody's going to have a bad left knee, right? Somebody's going to have a bad anything. You know, a bad kidney, a bad, you know, a, a, a bad gallbladder. I mean, somebody in there. And then he looked right at me, and I was sitting right on the front row, and he says, the problem we have in church today is guys about 25 years old, and I was right there in graduate school, who are Christians, at least I think they're Christians because they're holding their Bible, and I had my Bible right under my arm, who think that the way their little group does it is the way it ought to be done. He looked right at me. And everybody's thinking, yeah, that's a problem in the church today, the broad church today. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I want to get right under that chair and just hide. And I knew I wasn't going to judge men of God again. People speak into our lives. There are things that are said into our lives. There are things that confront us. It is very easy for us to look back and to judge these sort of things. And to say, yeah, you know, they were really bad. You know, Jesus, Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed, viewed others with contempt. So Jesus was telling people a story who viewed themselves as more righteous than others. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You know, so he was justifying. Nothing wrong with fasting twice a week. Nothing wrong with paying tithes on everything you get. But he was justifying himself on that basis. Then he says, but the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went away to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. When we read the Word of God, we are told to take it and look at it in the light of our own life. This is for the light of our own life and examine our own lives. These men that were for show doing things. He says, you want to be great, become a servant. He says, watch what you do as a show to others. And he starts speaking to them. He says, you know, you do all these, the, the, these things, all these things that you do and, and, uh, because you think that, that um, uh, they're going to they're gonna make, make, you, um, make you really, really... Uh, um, better person. But, you know, I want, you to, I want to close with this in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read in Colossians chapter 2. Remember, 
General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. I want, I want to just close with this. There are all these things on the outside that we might do to justify ourselves, our righteousness. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, it says, These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So, in other words, you can take a chain and beat your back and make you think that this is going to get you closer to God. And the Bible specifically says there are all these things in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Only by getting Jesus Christ into our hearts and making Him a part of our lives. We can think that, you know, if, if I, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, and then I'll be right with God. And God just wants your heart. He saves us to do good works. The good works are great. But he wants our hearts. And this is what these Pharisees were so caught up with. It was all this exterior stuff. And Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. Inside, it's full of deadness. He calls people to himself. He calls people to himself. Now, you can't walk in the teachings of Jesus Christ without accepting him. It is so important. If you have not yet accepted Jesus, don't let this day go by without accepting him. Accept Jesus into your lives, into your hearts. Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner. Just like that tax gatherer, beat your breast and say, Lord, forgive me the sinner. Forgive me the sinner. And ask Him into your life. And in our own lives, we need to, to look at our own selves and say, Lord, what is with my life? I, I don't want to be judging other people outside. What is it with my life? that I need to deal with? What is in my heart and in my life to keep me close to You? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. Father, I pray that You would take each heart here and have us examine ourselves lest we fall into this religious life of the Pharisees thinking that we've got it all together. Father, I pray that You would cause us to undergo a self-examination. Father, that You would bring this back to ourselves, that we would be ones that would stand before You, where You would speak to our hearts. Father, have mercy on these young people, I pray. Father, I pray that You would take them in their lives and help them to see that the closeness to God is what You desire. Father, work in their lives, I pray Thee. Have mercy on them. In the name of Jesus, amen.